Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 176, The Readeption. Before I pile ahead, some notices for you. Remember to check out the Agora Podcast Network and the associated website, intriguingly named agorapodcastnetwork.com. And do check out this month's featured Agora podcast, which is the Bohemican Podcast, all about the crossroads of Central Europe, the colourful history of the Czech people. Plus, actually, a bunch of other fab podcasts if you go to podcastnick.com. Readeption is a funny word. In fact, it basically isn't a word at all. It's just something somebody made up at the time. Or maybe it was a common word at the time. Morning, Alan. Sorry, a bit embarrassing. I was just uh, <clears throat> readapting. Don't worry, George. I'll be readapting tomorrow anyway, now that I know that you're readapting today. But then readapting fell out of fashion. And so now it only works to describe a specific historical event, maybe. Or maybe it was just poor spelling. Adeption rather than adoption. Anyway, if you know the answer, put them on a postcard and send them to the History of England, The Shed, Nerdston, Little England. I am sure you're wondering why I'm warbling on about an odd word, and if Word of the Week is back. Sadly, it's not, BTW. Well, readeption is the word used to describe Henry VI's reappearance on the throne of England. Let me explain. Last time, we left Edward in September 1470, running for home, running fast, as he can, oh yes, running home. 
The story is that he left with Hastings, Rivers and his brother Richard of Gloucester in such a panic that they only had the clothes on their back. Which gave them a problem when they got to Lynn in terms of buying a ferry ticket. Fortunately for Edward and his pals, social inequality was so wide at that time that the posh, fur-lined cloak Edward was wearing was sufficient payment. So just like Kevin and his fur-lined sheepskin jacket, Edward was relieved that it had cost him a packet and was able to get over to Bruges. There are clearly multiple song references in there, folks, so if any of you recognise any, pop the answers on the same podcast to Nerdston and you might get points. And we all know what points mean. Edward's position now relied on Charles le Temeraire, Charles the Bold, Duke of Boygundy, and his attitude. Edward was hopeful. After all, Warwick was bankrolled by Louis of France, and Boygundy wouldn't want a hostile England aligned with France. Meanwhile, Edward's wife Elizabeth Woodville, of course, legged it to sanctuary in Westminster Abbey, taking her three small daughters, Elizabeth, Mary and Cecily, with her. Within six months, by April 1471, a fourth sproglet had appeared in the form of a son and heir called Edward, and it was a veritable crash going on in the Abbey grounds. But when he arrived in Bruges, Edward found himself entirely dependent on Louis of Bruges. On the positive side, Louis of Bruges was super influential with his boss, Charles the Bold. On the downside, Charles the Bold was boldly ignoring Edward's existence. He was not keen to encourage England's new management team to take up with Louis and declare war on Boygundy. So Edward found himself given the cold shoulder, and his requests for an interview with Charles the not-so-bold, in fact distinctly wobbly, were ignored. It was only due to Louis of Bruges that Edward was able to avoid pawning his pants as well as his fur-lined sheepskin jacket. Warwick, meanwhile, was a pig in poo. Down he legged it in triumph to London. Two days after arriving there, he dashed off a letter to his backer, Louis of France. Pleased to know, by God's help and yours, for which I don't know how to thank you enough, this whole realm is now placed under the obedience of my king, my sovereign lord, and the usurper Edward driven out of it. Payback time was coming, but for the moment Warwick's priority was to establish a new, credible regime. Critical to that, of course, was to start re-adepting. And the first bit, I have no doubt, was a hoot for Warwick. Into town he rode with his mates, George Neville, Shrewsbury, Stanley, Courtney, Jasper Tudor. Off they hopped to the Tower of London. In his cell, Henry VI heard the turn of a key and before he knew it he was free, emerging confused, shambling and by the sounds of it, possibly a little smelly, into the light of London. It had not been a good time, according to his biographer. The 48-year-old Henry had, quote, patiently endured hunger, thirst, mockings, derision, abuse and many other hardships. As he emerged, one chronicler noted that he was not worshipfully arrayed as a prince and not so cleanly kept. But nonetheless, most folk seemed to be able to accept that Henry was now back. Warwick wasn't just an adventurer. By November, he'd reappointed a new government and carried out a parliament. Parliament did everything Warwick could have hoped for. 
declaring Henry king, Edward a pile of poo, reversing the attainders of the Lancastrian lords, all that sort of stuff that he needed. Unfortunately, Margaret and the Prince of Wales were stuck in Normandy, since Louis was refusing to let them cross until he had his war against Burgundy. But other Lancastrian lords were all coming out of the woodwork well enough. Men such as Edmund Beaufort, styling himself Duke of Somerset. Henry Holland, styling himself Duke of Exeter. And even the young Henry Tudor, 14 years old, and who was now at the side of his uncle Jasper. Margaret Beaufort enthusiastically joined brother-in-law Jasper at court to dine with the king and her son, Henry. She also brought her husband, Henry Stafford, who was frankly a good deal less enthusiastic, being a loyal Yorkist. And at this meeting, Henry VI is supposed to have prophesied greatness for the young Henry Tudor. Henry and Margaret, on the other hand, would probably have been more interested in an attempt to have him reclaim the title of Earl of Richmond like his dad. But there was a problem. Clarence had claimed that title, and until he was out of the way, it seemed unlikely that Henry Tudor would get it. Which illustrates the problem that Warwick now faced. It's a problem we've met before in civil wars over the years. I seem to remember Simon de Montfort having a similar dilemma. On the one hand, there were a bunch of Lancastrian lords who had been loyal through both thick and indeed through thin. The Mad Bad Exeter, for example. The Mad Bad Somerset. The Indefatigable Jasper Tudor. The Courtney family. Now that they had apparently won, fair and square, they expected the rewards of their loyalty. Which Warwick couldn't give them. There was a king over the water ready to pounce. He couldn't afford to be chucking Yorkist lords off their lands. Plus, he had an even bigger problem, George of Blessed Clarence. George was super green and super hairy right now, a major gooseberry. I mean, while everyone was bending the knee to Henry, the rightful King of England, here was this supercilious, smooth-tongued, morally slippery cuckoo in the Lancastrian nest, wandering around as though he owned the place. Even Clarence must have been aware of the sidelong glances and sneers at court, the scuffles among the household men as this murdering Yorkist walked among them. Here's how one chronicler described how Clarence was, quote, held in great suspicion, despite disdain and hatred, with all the lords, noblemen and others that were adherents and full partakers with Henry. He saw also that they daily laboured among them, breaking their appointments made with him, and, of likelihood after that, should continually, more and more fervently intend, conspire and procure the destruction of him and all his blood. Another problem Warwick had was, of course, that Henry VI was, in the words of one chronicler, a woolsack. Actually, this had its benefits. At least while Margaret was still out of the realm, Warwick had free reign, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> Warwick simply styled himself lieutenant of the realm and got on with it. The other big problem Warwick had was Louis. The agreement at Angers and French support for the invasion came with strings attached. England was now expected to ally with France and make war with Burgundy. Just for once, for a while at least, until his feet were properly under the table, Warwick would have preferred to wear flowers in his hair and make love not war, because any aggression towards Charles of Burgundy would probably result in Burgundian support for Edward.
but Louis wouldn't wait and called his chips in. And so, by 1470, Louis had renounced the Treaty of Peron with Burgundy and declared war on Burgundy, and Warwick was forced to offer support. He did, however, finally allow Anne Neville and Prince Edward, the son of Margaret of Anjou, to get married, which they duly were in December 1471. King Edward, meanwhile, had been doing what he could to target the folks back home that he thought could be his supporters. One of his top targets was Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland. After all, Edward had rescued Percy from the Tower and restored him to the earldom. Though before that he had slaughtered a few Percys, it had to be said, but hey, all's fair in love and war. And he guessed that Percy would be feeling mighty nervous about John Neville, Marquis Montague, who had now returned to the North and would no doubt have been looking balefully at his old title. The other bloke Edward targeted was Brother Clarence. There were two mighty good reasons for that. Firstly, because Edward had an inkling of the suspicion and distrust his brother was having to deal with at court. And secondly, there was female family pressure he could bring to bear. There was his mum, Cecily, to give Clarence an earful, but also his sisters Anne and Elizabeth to give him the third degree. But it was Louis's impatient declaration of war that cleared away the barriers between Edward and Charles. After Louis declared war, on the 26th of December, Edward finally received the invitation he wanted and had a meeting with the Duke on the 2nd to 4th of January, which was followed by another. Now, publicly, Charles continued to refuse support. Privately, he slipped £20,000 into Edward's back pocket along with some ships. The Hanstowns waded in with a few more, Rivers dug behind the sofa and managed to find a couple more, and before you could say re-adeption, Edward had a small and bijou invasion force of 36 ships and 1,200 men, including some Flemish gunners. And so on the 11th of March 1471, off they set from the Flemish town of Flushing to once again seek his fortune. It was a risky business. In fact, a business so risky that not even the fabulous Tom Cruise would have taken it on. Seriously, by this stage, England didn't give a tinker's curse who was on the blessed throne as long as someone stopped the trampling across their crops. When Edward and his boats tipped up outside Cromer in East Anglia, hoping for support from his mate Norfolk and hopefully from Suffolk to boot, they discovered that both of those guys were in custody and that it was John de Vere, Earl of Oxford, who was in control in East Anglia now. And as Edward sat gnawing on his thumb deciding what to do, the wind came along and blew them apart anyway. Plan B, then, was Ravenspur, on the mouth of the Humber in Yorkshire, where Edward landed on the 14th of March 1471. Edward came in at the same place with the same wheeze that Bolingbroke had tried all those years before. Look, I've only come to claim my title as Duke of York. Ha, right. I cannot imagine there were more than three people in the entire country who believed him, and all of them should have been ashamed of themselves. Now, by the way, what follows is full of place names and all that, so I have laboured long and hard to create handy maps which are on the website. I laboured so hard that it got really difficult because my bones were sticking out of my fingers. Anyway, go to thehistoryofengland.com and avail yourselves of those maps if you so desire. Landing in Yorkshire was super risky. 
It's easy to think. Ah, Duke of York. Yep, of course, seems obvious. Land in Yorkshire. He'll have lots of mates there, because he's the Duke of York. But no, gentle listener, not a bit of it. Yorkshire was Neville country. Yorkshire was Warwick's backyard, his hood. Added to that, further north sat two kings of the north, John Neville and Henry Percy as Earl of Northumberland. Henry Percy in particular had enormous influence with the baronage and gentry of the north. John Neville was more recent, but had the men and strength to crush Edward's little contingent. The Duke of York headed for York. He managed to get inside York, but his titchy army had to be left outside. Thence to his family castle at Sandal, where he hoped many would join him, and sadly for him, many did no such thing. John Neville was at Pontefract, but a few miles away. As Edward headed down towards the Midlands, everyone held their breath. What would Percy and John Neville do? Neither did anything. It seems that Percy held back from a positive decision. He couldn't move to join Edward. He was not yet secure enough in his family's old country. And John Neville was too powerful. But he could hold back. And he could and did give Edward a letter of support to wave around and persuade the local baronage not to squish him like a bug as he passed. But what on earth was John Neville doing? Sitting at Pontefract with Edward in his power as he passed by? There are three theories, really. One is that Edward fooled him with his fine words about only wanting to be Duke of York and all that. Now that could be true, if Neville had suddenly turned into a two-year-old blithering idiot. So I think we discount that. Which leaves two. Firstly, that he had Percy at his back, and he dared not move lest Percy took advantage. It's more possible to believe this. Still not easy to think that Percy would have had the time the last is that in the end John Neville simply couldn't bear to destroy the man he'd served so well for so long. It's difficult to believe any of these really. I'd probably go for number two. Maybe in the end he just thought Edward would be crushed by his brother. But whatever the reason, John Neville let Edward pass. And where was John's brother, the mighty kingmaker? Warwick had been in the south, waiting for the Queen and Prince Edward, but winds had relentlessly prevented them from leaving France so Warwick had returned to London to bite on his nails a bit. When Edward landed in Ravenspur, he legged it up to Warwickshire to start recruiting. Meanwhile, Clarence was also furiously recruiting in Western England. Some months ago, Parliament had issued official commissions of array on behalf of King Henry. It had done so to very few people, John Neville, Clarence, Oxford, because few more could be trusted. But now even the official nature of all of that was a pipe dream. The country was now watching a bunch of aristocrats and their affinities slug it out for naked power. Now it was down to how strong those ties were between lord and man. There's a letter from Warwick to the Vernons, Warwick's men in Derbyshire. The letter to the head of the family, Henry Vernon, was the normal sort of stuff, condemning Edward, etc., etc., and telling Vernon to come and meet Warwick with his men but there's a personal postscript from Warwick to the man whose loyalty he absolutely needed to rely on. Henry, I pray you, fail me not now as ever I may do for you. Ah, Warwick. 
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. It was decision time. If Edward could be defeated, surely that would be the end of the House of York and Warwick would reign supreme. If Warwick lost, he would surely now be toast. There's no way Edward would ever be able to trust him again. All terribly stressful. Meanwhile, Clarence was acting a little oddly. Not that it looked too untoward, Clarence was collecting men in the southwest for all he was worth, and promising to come northwards to join Warwick in the Midlands. But he was trying to get men like Vernon to join him, Clarence, rather than go straight to Warwick, which was a bit odd. Much, much more worrying than this, the Lancastrian lords, who together could crush the Yorkist snake, Shrewsbury, Tudor, Somerset, Courtney, Thomas Stanley, these men couldn't bring themselves to answer a summons from the hated Warwick. If Margaret and the Prince Edward, if they'd been there, well, fine, sure. But they were still trapped in France this time trapped by the wind rather than by Louis. Once again, if Louis had been less pushy about the war with Burgundy and if he'd let them go earlier, Warwick would have been in a much better place. Nonetheless, it did look as though Edward was heading toastwards. By the time he'd reached Nottingham on his march south, John Neville was chasing him from the north. Oxford and Exeter were to his east coming up from East Anglia. Warwick was south and west of him, and Clarence was coming up from the southwest. So, Edward decided he had to try to beat them piecemeal. If he had any chance, the cutting off of the head of the snake would be the best thing. So, dramatically, he charged for Warwick's position. Here it was, the final countdown. Except that Warwick chose this moment to make like Sir Robin and bravely turn his tail and flee inside the walls of Coventry. Now, who am I to criticise the kingmaker, the great kingmaker, for his tactical decisions? I mean, I can see his point of view. He's got more armies than flies on a pile of poo, but individually none of them are probably big enough to be confident of delivering a knockout blow. So why should he allow himself to be forced to give battle when he wasn't ready? Let's get John and Clarence and Henry and John together in one big happy family and then we can go and give Edward a kicking. And besides, who could, 
then and now, go anywhere near Coventry and resist her charms. I mean, I ask you. Edward sat outside and did some taunting in Warwick's general direction and offered a pardon to all the people in Coventry if they came and joined him as well as Warwick. Exeter and Oxford tried to attack, but Edward drove them off, which kind of supports the point about each individual army not being big enough to deal with Edward. Now Edward made another decision. If he stayed where he was and besieged Coventry, in a few days he'd look up and notice that the hunter had become the hunted. And so he kept going, southwest towards Brother Clarence at Burford. And meanwhile, what of Shrewsbury and Stanley and their gathering of armed men to serve Henry, the rightful King of England? Well, Shrewsbury was being very busy, spending all his time furiously and studiously considering his fingernails and making sure he went nowhere near Coventry. Stanley was more active. He'd gathered an army. Very good. But he was using it to knock seven bells out of his local competitor, the Harringtons. The motto of the Stanleys, BTW, was sans changer, which is seriously something of a hoot, since changing according to the wind direction was in fact their speciality. In fact, if you were heading down the bookies, having a look at which way the Stanley weather vane was pointing would give you a pretty good idea about where events were heading. Clarence and Edward's armies approached each other near Burford. When the two armies were less than a mile apart, Edward and his brother Richard rode out from the main host. Clarence, with just a few followers, cantered out towards them. He then threw himself on his knees in front of Edward, and fickle Clarence begged for forgiveness. Forgiveness was granted, and the three brothers were all smiles and happiness and reconciliation and Christmas cards again. The Wheel of Fortune had just taken another turn. Now Edward looked much more threatening. Back to Coventry they went, where Clarence was allowed to offer a full pardon, which was big of Clarence, obviously, and I can only imagine the size of the flea that Warwick deposited in Clarence's ear at that conversation outside the walls of Coventry, when Warwick told him to sling his hook. The way to London was now open, and Edward took it. George Neville made a frantic effort to rally the inhabitants to resist. He paraded the king through the streets of London. He appealed to memories of Henry's great father, Henry V, by carrying with them a pole bearing two foxtails, which apparently was the great king's symbol. The effect was somewhat damaged by Henry himself, who was by now completely divorced from any kind of independent political ambition. He insisted on wearing the dull and simple robes suitable for Monday Thursday, which was, fair enough, the day concerned, but as a result he impressed nobody. Meanwhile, the poor old elders of London were busy laying eggs. Letters were arriving left, right and centre. Warwick was writing furious letters telling them to hold London at all costs. Edward was writing to them telling them to open the gates to the rightful King of England or suffer the consequences. George Neville was parading round town, waving the tails of dead animals at everyone. According to one chronicler, all the women that Edward had slept with were telling their husbands to let Edward in. What was a man to do? The mayor was a man called John Stockton, and he took the only sensible decision in the circumstances, and went to bed, drawing the covers firmly over his head and refusing to come out. I can imagine many sanctimonious parents sternly telling their children this is no way to tackle problems, but in fact it served Stockton pretty well. 
In the event, it was therefore the strongly Yorkist Bourchier, Archbishop of Canterbury and Earl of Essex, who swayed the decision. And when Edward approached, the gate swung open and the Yorkist boys were back in town. Suddenly and mysteriously, all those symbols of the bare and ragged staff, Warwick's badge, were notable by their absence, and the sun in splendour was all over the place instead. Spooky. Somerset and Courtney had fled to Devon to wait for the arrival of the Queen and Prince. So Edward duly arrived, and went straight away to St Paul's and then the Bishop's Palace to pick up the other king. Henry seems to have been relieved to see him. My cousin of York, you are very welcome. I know that in your hands my life will not be in any danger. History does not record Edward's answer. Well, we'll soon see about that. Don't go out on your own late at night is a possibility. Either way, Henry found himself back in the Tower of London, as did George Neville. Next, Edward went to see the missus at Westminster, and smiles all round ensued, as the family was reunited at Barnard's Castle with Mum Cecily, though you'd imagine everyone was tempted to aim the odd kick at Clarence's backside. Oops, so sorry, George, didn't see your head in the way there. But there was no time for partying, or for chilling. On Easter Saturday, reports had reached Gloucester and Edward that Warwick was on the march from St Albans, north of London. With him now were Oxford and John Neville. And so late on the Saturday, Edward's entire strength of 9,000 men with Gloucester, Clarence, Hastings, Rivers and Lord Howard set out. Plus, Edward hauled Henry VI out with him to counter Warwick's claims that he was acting on behalf of the rightful king. Once Warwick had met up with all his remaining friends, Brother Montague, Oxford, Exeter, he decided attack was now his best and indeed possibly only hope. He had no idea when Margaret would ever arrive. He had no desire to see his support melt away. Hate it or loathe it, it was now or it was never. And so Warwick moved south on the road to London to see whether the roads were paved with gold. He got to St Albans and then he took up a position about a mile north of the town of Barnet, which is about ten miles north of London Stone. His left was commanded by mad, bad Henry Holland, Duke of Exeter his centre by Montague, hopefully looking suitably sheepish about letting Edward go, and the right by John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. As night fell, in the darkness, Warwick's scouts clattered into camp reporting that Edward's scouts had chased them out of Barnet, and so Warwick started his cannon. All night they boomed away, despite the complaints of the neighbours. All night Edward kept his quiet, so as not to give away his position and all the balls duly passed harmlessly over the heads of the Yorkists. Easter was quite late that year, April the 14th, and it was Easter Sunday as dawn appeared, as indeed it is today, the day I write this. It was foggy at 4am as both armies prepared by being put into their sleeves. Montague apparently at this point persuaded his brother Warwick that he must share the risks with his men. Normally Warwick fought on horseback, so this time, first time, Warwick sent his horses to be taken care of to the rear and took up his post as commander of the reserve on foot. The Battle of Barnet was dictated largely by two basics. Firstly, the armies were misaligned and there was a heavy fog, so none of them could see that they were misaligned. 
So essentially, in the early stages, both commanders got some good news and they got some bad news. For example, a messenger charged over to Warwick and told him that Oxford had flanked Edward's left wing under Hastings, and as a consequence, Hastings had been smashed and his men had been chased off the park, and Oxford's men were busy looting Barnet. Hurrah! Warwick told Oxford to get his men under control and use his advantage to stop chasing Hastings' beaten men and hit Edward's centre instead, where Montague and Edward were now fighting it out toe-to-toe. Advantage going first one way and then the next. Meanwhile, Gloucester, with his first command at the age of 18, had found the same situation as had Oxford. He'd outflanked Exeter. But here, Warwick quickly deployed his reserve, and so the Lancastrian line held. So, at this stage, it was all looking pretty good for the kingmaker. The battle in the centre went on for three hours, until somewhere around seven o'clock in the morning. Now, by this stage, Oxford had finally managed to get his men under control and recall them to their duty. As Edward slugged it out and Gloucester grimly held the line against Exeter and Warwick's reserves, death was thundering its way towards Edward's centre through the fog. Except that Oxford missed. Now, Oxford's insignia, the sun with streamers, looked spookily like Edward's sun in splendour. As Oxford's contingent emerged from the fog, assuming that they were going to hack Edward's men to pieces, Warwick's centre mistook them for Edward's Yorkists, with the sun in splendour. They panicked and started firing. Oxford and his men yelled treachery and ran. Oxford himself didn't stop until he reached Scotland. All along the line, the cries of treason went up, men looked for safety, the Lancastrian line wavered. Richard and Edward felt the change and cried for a renewed attack. Every chronicler agreed that Edward was in the forefront of the battle, young, dynamic, tall and buff. The Yorkists pushed forward with renewed hope and vigour and that was all it took. The Lancastrians broke. John Neville was cut down and killed. Exeter was cut down and left for dead. And Warwick, seeing his hopes evaporating, ran for his horses, cursing his brother for this daft idea of fighting on foot to be down with the people, as if anybody wants to be down with the people. A 42-year-old man, frantically stumbling in full armour over the rough ground, he was spotted by a band of Yorkists. He was run down. A knife was thrust under his neck. And Warwick, the kingmaker was no more. Well, by golly. It's difficult to say goodbye to a bloke who has dominated so many of our episodes, but Warwick the Kingmaker is gone. His body and that of his brother were taken to St Paul's in London and laid out so that all could see that they really were dead. Then they were handed over to Archbishop Neville to be buried in the family vaults in Bissom Abbey. Exeter, though left for dead, survived and was sent to the Tower for the next four years, while his wife Anne, Edward IV's sister, divorced him and took up with her fancy man. So, what do we all think of Warwick, then? There are two broad interpretations, one of the man dominated by an overweening desperate ambition, the other of a kind of chivalric hero with an eye for the common man and the common good. I must say, for my part, he, and indeed most of the Wars of the Roses, seem to be very, very medieval. 
very much driven by the concept of the Lord, his reputation and his affinity, with a large dose of personal ambition thrown in. It has to be said that Edward IV doesn't cover himself in glory either in the way he treated Warwick, but I can't help but think that it was in either or. Warwick couldn't see Edward rule without him. The town of England was simply not big enough for the both of them. As a commander, politician, magnate, well, there's no denying Warwick had daring in spades, and his career at sea, while not exactly ethical, built a powerful reputation which he never quite managed to live up to on land, where he was hardly a faultless commander. And you could argue that it's his fault that everyone started murdering each other, which had not been the tradition previously. So it's been quite a journey, but whatever you think, he's a larger-than-life figure who commands attention but exceptional in terms of talent or vision, equally definitively not either. Just two days after the Battle of Barnet, Edward received the news that on the very same day as Warwick had died, Queen Margaret and Prince Edward had landed at Weymouth in the southwest of England, 140 miles from London. No rest for the wicked then. But we'll hear more about the wicked next time, because that's it for now. Don't forget the maps on Tinternet, thehistoryofengland.com Finally, I have some donators to thank. Firstly, my regulars, Russell, David, Tudor Queen, Oak, Bernard. And for the donators this month, many thanks to Amy, David, Borry, Paul and Michael. Thanks so much for your generosity. So that's it then. See you next week. Good luck and have a great week.